Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Foreign correspondents are mythical cult figures in American culture. Hollywood portrays them as dashing figures running from one hot spot to another, dodging bullets and meeting diplomats at the backs of cafes, checking their phones to see if they're tapped, wondering whether the next knock at their door will bring them unwanted guests from the government they're covering. Cajal Vias, the regional correspondent in South America for the Wall Street Journal, knows that life having spent the last five years in Caracas, Venezuela, and just moving to a new post in Bogota, Colombia, a country known for its heavy drug traffic. And here he is, ready to share some of the secrets of that life with us. Welcome, Kajal. Good to be here. So tell us about what is it like to be a foreign correspondent. Get up in the morning. What are you doing? You're in Caracas at this time. Yeah, it's uh, not always as glamorous as uh, the Hollywood portrayal. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of reading, a lot of office time, but uh, there are also you know tons of opportunities to be out in the slums, you know, talking to people who are living with the crises that you hear about oftentimes that are romanticized in those Hollywood uh, pieces that you talked about. Uh, you know, a typical day for me would, you know, be a lot of, you know, monitoring a lot of Venezuelan media. I will say actually being a foreign correspondent is quite liberating also, uh, journalistically speaking. It's a very fast-paced environment, so you're shifting gears almost on a day-to-day basis, especially in a country like Venezuela where the news flow is quite heavy and quite aggressive. Uh, it's a country with a lot of problems currently, and so uh, you never know if you're going to be writing about some mundane financial thing, which is actually quite important, though may sound quite mundane. Or you might be covering, you know, uh, poverty in the slums or you know, uh, a trend of, you know, police officers being murdered or being trying to, uh, you know, that's been happening actually quite a lot recently and, you know, cops get killed for their guns. And so uh, it's... Uh, it's it's exciting. Uh, Do you carry a gun? I do not, no. I've never actually touched a weapon my whole life. Have you gotten any advice from the New York office about whether you should carry a gun? I think, uh, no, I don't I, I don't think uh, we're supposed to be carrying any weapons, though. Well, I wonder, when you get up in the morning in a, in a country where the press is, is rather oppressed, is another way to put it, um, where do you get your information? Tweeting? There's tons of Twitter monitoring. I uh, have to... Uh, admit, like I w- was not a believer in Twitter until I moved to Venezuela. Uh, I don't even think I had an account. I think I opened up one after I moved there. But uh, there, that is actually a very large part of the job, um, monitoring Twitter, because uh, Venezuela is one of these countries where uh, if you're not on Twitter, chances are pretty high you don't know what's going on. Um, because, uh, as you mentioned, you know, there is a lot of, uh, censorship in the media and a lot of self-censorship, which is the big, uh, thing that's been going on over the last couple of years. Um, several kind of uh, shadow groups that, you know, many, many people have not been able to trace completely, but, uh, they've bought up a lot of major media in Venezuela. They're groups with, with, you know, many people believe that have ties to the government uh, in one way or another, but, uh, 
you've seen a lot of very critical media, very prominent media in the country, uh, just been absolutely gutted of their work staff and also their, uh, you know, the power in which they used to project news. And if you talk to them on the telephone, they'll have to worry about being having their phones tapped, huh? That's a concern, yeah, uh, <laughs> quite a quite common concern in Venezuela. I've spoken, I mean, you get this quite often speaking to sources. Uh, people won't talk to you unless, uh, uh, you know, you have one of these, like, encrypted email services or, uh, you know, they prefer speaking, obviously, in person. Because there, a- is, there is a risk of having you know your phone's tapped that's a new idea not not talking to people by email but actually going out and looking at them and seeing them <laughs> it yeah it might be new for my generation yeah but uh you know it's it i, I actually find it to be much much more uh useful too i mean i think people are a lot more uh engaging and honest when you're actually in front of them uh before you go shavaz died a couple of years ago um what I heard was that people were afraid to go out at night, afraid to be American. I mean, you're American, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, weren't you concerned about how people might view you? Well, uh, you know, I'm maybe, you know, my, my for for your listeners, I mean, my, my background is, uh, my family's from India, and uh, so I don't stand out as your typical gringo in uh, in Caracas. I'm, you know, I'm not blonde and I'm not not you're, white, so you're dark. <laughs> I am brown skinned, so uh, that actually helps quite a bit. I don't stand out nearly as much, you know, on the streets. But people do look at me, and it's obvious that I'm not from there. But they may not see me immediately as as an American. Uh, yeah, it is one of these countries where uh, you know you don't necessarily want to uh, brag about the fact that you're American. I, I remember early on in my time in Venezuela going into an interview uh, with somebody very pro government. Uh, he was a, some pro-government union leader, and the first thing he asked me was whether or not I was CIA. And at the time, my Spanish was quite bad, and so uh, I just kind of jokingly was like, "Yeah," you know, kind of almost brushing off the question as a joke. But he actually thought I was serious. The whole idea of a foreign correspondent, there have been. I've read a lot about it. Reporters, reporters, of course, borders and people like that are always concerned about about you guys and whether or not someone's going to come to get you. And in Caracas and in Bogota, where you're about to go, it's they say, watch out. It, I, I will say, like, you know, I have not personally uh, felt any pressure uh, in Venezuela, but I do know tons of other people who have had, uh, who've been either detained or, um, you know, felt some kind of pressure from, I mean, you never know if it's like, you know, from the government. I mean, this is, Venezuela is one of these countries where, you know, it's quite chaotic, quite uh, anarchic in many ways, to the point where, um, it's very convenient. Uh, you know, you can be a victim of common crime, and no one will know it, whether it was common crime or somebody just, you know, some kind of conspiracy. I suppose government crime, maybe, possibly. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's got one of the highest murder rates in the world. I think it's number two or three uh, after Honduras. And um, so, it's yeah, it's one of these places you really do have to be careful whether or not you're a journalist. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're a journalist, you're probably more, you know, in in the limelight than your average person. But uh, it's hard to know if that helps you or hurts you, though. People know who you are. Um, I mean, not not your average person on the street, but uh, you know, some. Uh, Wall Street Journal has actually had a fairly 
prominent uh, well, you know we we've, we're known in in Venezuela yeah you don't go out at night do you no uh i mean very little uh, or a lot less than i used to when i lived in the states uh, that's another part of just you know also just living in Venezuela i think uh, journalist or non-journalist uh, you do limit your nighttime movements uh, and that's you know you can attribute that to the crime problem that i mentioned earlier uh, like you know, some things that I mean, after dark, many times. I mean, I live in a neighborhood that's supposed to be, you know, somewhat higher society, but uh, I mean, it's barren after seven p.m. or so. Uh, there's literally nobody on the streets, and you're. I mean, even if you're in a car, you're recommended uh, not to stop at a at a red light. Uh, you know, you just see people just run lights all the time, and you know, these are safety precautions that people take because uh, you know, kidnappings and uh, you know, robberies and murders are just so common. Uh, it, it hits closer all the time uh, as well. Um, you know, I've noticed, you know, many more shootings in our in our neighborhood. And you know, just several months ago, I remember waking up at midnight to you know, like about ten pops that sounded like they were just uh, right across the street. I later found out they were two streets away, but you know, that's close enough for me. <laughs> Very close. Yeah. I was just, just curious about um, people you talk to. Everyone's afraid of the government. When you interview somebody, do they any of them get into trouble for what they've said to you or will say to you? Or I mean, I've never found out. I mean, I've never, uh, it's never happened to me that, you know, I've spoken to somebody and later I found out that, you know, they got in serious trouble or anything. But there is always, you know, we're an economic newspaper, so a lot of my reporting has to do with, you know, economics, finance. Uh, lucrative business deals, um, and yeah, many people that we talk to, people are always uh, a lot of the people who I mentioned earlier who don't want to talk to me without it being in person or through some kind of encrypted service. Uh, many of those people have you know lucrative deals with with the government and are you know very afraid of losing them if they say anything that uh, you know is damaging. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. Our guest is Cajo Vias, the South American regional correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, who will soon be working out of Bogota. Did you ever imagine growing up in Netley, New Jersey? Did you be living in places like Caracas and Bogota? Never. Uh, never crossed my mind. Uh, I... I mean, I, <laughs> I was always kind of, I think, like a news nerd and always learned, kind of just learning about the world. But uh, it wasn't until I, you know, studied at Rutgers that I, uh, when I went to college, I thought I was being like a good, uh, you know, Indian kid. Uh, I started as, as a pharmacy student. And uh, you weren't on drugs, just as a pharmacy. <laughs> yes, yeah. I was. Del- I was uh, counting pills, but you know they were legitimate at uh, at a far- at a CVS. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, uh, like, I did that for a year and a half, and uh, you know, I realized that I hated my life, and so I wanted to uh, really kind of dig into my my passion. I took a member of a intro- introduction to like journalism class as an elective, and I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do, and I I. I think in college I did have dreams of being like a, a war correspondent, you know, like like you know, wanting to be, uh, you know, the guys you see, I guess, on on TV in some ways. But uh, yeah, the Killing Fields with uh, yeah. Sidney Schamberg. But I will I will say that after 
five years in Venezuela, I don't know if I want to go any more extreme than <laughs> than uh, than Caracas. Then you moved on, and suddenly you were hired as a reporter's assistant for Dow Jones in New York, where you had to wear a tie and shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a very formal. It's probably know. why you wanted to go be at foreign correspondence. <laughs> so you can get out of that clothes, right? Probably. It had something to do with it. But no, yeah. Like, uh, I, actually, the office at that time was in Jersey City. I joined the company right after uh, Murdoch uh, had bought it. So there was lots of changes going on. And I uh, just kind of moved, been moving with the with the tide. And, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, after like three years between New York and then New Jersey. I'm sorry, uh, New Jersey and then New York. Uh, I got this opportunity to, you know, uh, go on an adventure, and I took it. The adventure and the adventure. You you were offered a number of a number of places, right? Well, I had I was I was I had two different options. I was in uh, I was considering going to Singapore, uh, and I also we also had a job opening in Venezuela, and so I uh, I remember having. A couple couple days of like a lot of uh, thinking to do, and uh, <laughs> I, an editor uh, who's actually still at the journal, he he uh, had recommend he pulled me over to the side and he's like, "Hey, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, you don't want to go to Singapore. You know, you don't want to stare at some charts. It's mostly like markets coverage, and you know, it's very." He's like, this is not what you went to journalism school for, <laughs> and so uh, he's like, you want to be out on the gr- on the ground, you know, talking to people, and, you know, doing conventional reporting, and uh, and boy, uh, greatest advice I would say I ever, I ever got, and I thank him to this day for it. And Venezuela, Venezuela. You hit Venezuela, but you couldn't speak Spanish, could you? No, I spoke uh, a few other languages, like. Uh, I speak three Indian languages, and and I used to speak Italian, which uh, which actually helped a lot with uh, Spanish. So I kind of knew, you know, I could put it together. I promised my my editors that uh, I could, you know, pick it up very fast. And so uh, I was, you know, I was actually functional within a, a couple months. So it worked out. I, I mean, I'm, I I made endless errors. Uh, you know, to this day, you know, I. I I actually think it's um, it helps with my my reporting sometimes. Uh, you know, me like making grammatical errors and whatnot. I think I feel sometimes people feel bad for me. And uh, and <laughs> you ever make any really bad mistakes because of, because of the language barrier that you somewhat language barrier that you had? Uh, no, no, because I used to I was very paranoid about it, and I used to uh, make sure it was double and triple checked before I uh, you know would go run with anything but um but yeah no it i was lucky i i I do have kind of i guess a knack for for languages so it it helped out that's the voice of cage levias the regional correspondent for the wall street journal soon to be out of bogota colombia you can smile all you want cage but terrorists and foreign countries see american journalists as extensions of the american government You have to be a CIA agent, just the way so many of them are agents of their governments. You can't put that aside, can you? I mean, look, uh, I I kind of expect it at this point. I mean, after five years there, I kind of expect uh, certain entities to kind of just see me that way. Uh, I mean, it's funny they do because, like, I don't have, like, that much interaction with the, you know, the... uh, the U.S. Embassy there. I mean, they. I would say they talk to me about as much as the the Venezuelan government would talk to me, which is not very much. 
I would think they'd want to. They'd want to uh, maybe recruit you. Uh, There's so many stories about that. Yeah, but I don't think they're interested in blabbermouths like uh, like me. And so uh, I, I don't. I don't think. Um, I just don't know if that relationship would ever, <laughs> if there would ever be one. I don't think that would ever work out. Well, you're doing yeah. a piece now that's that's coming out about poverty, and I would assume that the um, response is not going to be, you know, kind of positive. No, um, I'm, I'm sure it won't. But uh, what'd you find out? Well, you know, it's uh, you know, the the one kind of thing that the Venezuela's uh, Chavez, who you mentioned earlier, you know, I mean, he built this like cult like following. Uh, over 14 years in office. Uh, Based on hate America. Well, there was some of that. It, I mean, it was a lot of that. But it was also um, it was also him kind of just taking advantage of this big oil boom. Uh, he lived through, you know, this year, this period of like 10 years where the country had more oil revenues than it had had in its entire history. And so uh, he had a lot of money to throw around, which he did throw around. And uh, I think by the government's own admissions, like they they took in like a trillion dollars in oil revenue, and uh, you know they proudly say that they you know uh, distributed two thirds of it to the people, whatever that means. Which people? Right. That's, <laughs> well, that's that, always the question. That's so another what, question. So tell us about the poverty you found. Well, I mean that's I mean after all this like kind of spending bonanza, you you know you go out to uh i mean you don't have to go even go, leave caracas that far i mean you just go out to the outskirts of the town you there's I mean, the people there are living in pretty dire situations and um now with the economy kind of really collapsing i mean you're kind of it's kind of exposing the fact that uh they may have brought some people out of poverty according to certain measures uh it's a different metrics you know obviously in me- me- measuring poverty as well but uh at the end of the day, you know, now that they can't, the government can't provide as much as they used to for them. These people have, I mean, the, the education system's falling apart. Uh, you know, there's very little infrastructure uh, investment that has been made. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, you have people who live in shanties who got, you know, a refrigerator or an oven through a government program. But uh, any food that's that it. goes in there, how about the food? It's it's harder to buy it every day because uh, I mean it's this is a country where there's a like the inflation estimates are like two hundred percent so like I mean literally there's a homeless. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, the thing is like people do have they have homes. I mean they they may not be the in the best shape, but the thing is that they uh, under the current government they were allowed to construct you know shanties just about anywhere. Uh, uh, basically unregulated and so people may have a roof over their head it may not be a very good roof but uh and it also may slide down the hill next time there's a mudslide but um i assume you go into villages and and take a look at what the poverty's like there maybe give us an idea of what that was like sure yeah and doing the reporting for the story uh i spent uh, some time in a one of the largest slums uh, right outside of Caracas, uh, it's a place called Petare. It's uh, mostly kind of rolling hills with, you know, shanties that kind of like jut out. Like, uh, kind of looks like if you just put a bunch of Legos, you know, on a on a hilltop. Uh, and um, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time there, and uh, people were you know, extremely happy to, you know, sh- talk about you know the struggles that they have there. You know, they haven't had you know running water and. In a couple of years, uh, they can't afford food. Uh, I met a I met a, a gentleman who um, 
uh, who had uh, an eight, a 14-month-year-old son, and he can only uh, the government regulations only allow him to buy uh, a po- one kind of 750-milliliter uh, uh, box of milk for the whole week for the whole family. And so, uh, you know, he was he was telling me how he was really happy that his son can now chew food because uh, they don't have to, you know, he can't find milk, so he has to substitute it with others. Uh, he has to substitute his diet with other stuff. Uh, it's it's just a very violent place, and um, you know, in my reporting, I had this one uh, incident uh, after speaking to a group of people there. Um, you know, the lady who was guiding me around, all of a sudden, uh, she you know, <laughs> starts rushing me out of the place, and you know, grabs my backpack and uh, tells me, you know, you're not going to open your mouth, you're not going to say anything, and I said, okay, uh, I guess I wore out my welcome. And she walks me out, and the first thing I see after we walk out of like the little shack where we had all gathered uh, is a young guy, must be in his 20s, with a white T-shirt carrying a giant uh, machine gun, <laughs> drinking a beer. Uh, I guess, I mean, nobody was really paying much attention to him in the, in the slum. I guess that's pretty normal for them to see. But she uh, walked me away, and she's like, uh, I didn't feel comfortable with you there anymore because some of the problematics had arrived and I said wow okay and and that's just basically how how life is for them over there the people that you spoke to they they're they I would think they'd be in danger as well why would they talk to you after knowing the, the kind of repression in a country like uh, Venezuela you know it's um, that's a that's a great question I, I uh, you, you kind of notice more people willing to talk to you nowadays I mean there's certain parts of town where you just cannot enter uh, I wouldn't be able to just enter and start asking people questions about how they feel about the government and things like that uh, you know they would probably accuse me of some of the things that you mentioned earlier about the CIA and whatnot but uh, they um, I think with the current crisis that you're seeing in the country you know people are speaking out a lot more and uh, you know I've noticed quite a big shift in my five years there I kind of saw like the high period of the end of the Chavez era and the very low period that we're living now well I'm thinking about that when you did interview somebody and what it was seemed to be a very very innocent conversation that person got into trouble sure yeah no that was um, I mean last year we did a uh, I did a I did a report on uh, you know, whiskey consumption in, in Venezuela. Uh, it used to be like one of the biggest whiskey pr- importing countries in the world. Pretty small population, but boy, do they like their whiskey. Uh, but you know now the country's in pretty bad economic shape, and they don't really have any dollars to uh, import all the things that all the luxury items that they like they used to like. So um, anyway, we did a story on that, and uh, I had gotten a lot of help from. Uh, a guy at a very large uh, whiskey uh, manufacturing company. Uh, I'll keep the name out, uh, but but he, <laughs> but he, it was. Um, uh, I, we never identified him, but but he he okay. yeah. Uh, but but he uh, later on got like Toby. He got so much pressure from his uh, from his uh, superiors, and uh, I've actually never heard from him again. <laughs> Bogota's next. Bogota's now. Bogota is poorer than Caracas. Bogota is known as as one of the centers of drug traffic in the world. And Bogota does not like journalists. Well, uh, I think actually 
I mean, yeah, the no doubt about it that Colombia has. Uh, I have a ton of ton of paper here. Telling me all about it. Well, Colombia has uh, you know, no doubt a huge uh, list of problems. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's funny you mentioned Colombia as the uh, uh, the kind of the epicenter of the drug trade. I mean, there Venezuela's role in that drug trade has also uh, risen quite aggressively over the last uh, you know decade or so. Uh, it's Venezuela has become one of the big, uh, according to the to the U.S. government, according to the UN, uh, according to number of uh, you, know, uh, you know international organizations who track this stuff. Um, A center yeah. for Hezbollah. Well, well, also drug trafficking. I mean, because it's because of the chaos and the uh, lack of regulation in the whole country, it's just become prime uh, real estate for. Uh, you know, the basically the transportation end of the drug business, and into this into this um, horrendous uh, into this not so nice area, you're, you're bringing your fiance. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Does yeah. she know? What does she Girl- think about this? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Invite but, me to the wedding when that happens. All right. Sure. Uh, yeah. No. Um, it, well, the thing is, though. Uh, at the moment, there's tons of uh, Venezuelans trying to go to Colombia <laughs> because uh, because of the situation in Venezuela. So it's actually uh, it's difficult for Venezuelans like uh, my my girlfriend to actually make it over to Colombia because it's just there's too many people wanting to get out of uh, get out of the mess. And so um, Colombia, you know, for all its problems you know uh, it did see kind of uh, you know somewhat its economy is some a lot more stable than than Venezuela's and people see actually the, the roles have actually quite reversed uh, in over the last uh, 20 years I mean the the image that you painted of Colombia before from Venezuela it's seen completely differently um, you know people see it as a stable place that you know I, I'd like to go to uh, you know I, I remember actually just going going to Bogota for the first time uh, I think it was like three three years ago or so, and having already spent quite a bit of time in Caracas, I was just like, "Wow, man, this is like the most functional place on earth." I thought it was like it felt like Switzerland for a second because <laughs> uh, it just had the uh, you know I mean it had like all the markings of a uh, normal city you know in terms of like people are out and about at night you know there's commercial activity uh, it's you know uh, and to be fair there is some of that in Caracas but doesn't compare in terms of size and um and people don't seem to be living with the same level of terror uh that people live in Caracas with all these stories I'm reading and all these newspapers saying beware one there was one piece where somebody said that the anybody who's a foreign correspondent should never travel without a coat hanger you don't have a coat hanger I don't carry one no I've I've not been given that advice but uh I do get a lot of um folks uh telling me to be careful and whatnot <laughs> especially because of how how uh you know volatile things are in venezuela you know a lot of my my contacts i i talk to a lot of like you know think tank guys in washington who you know call me up to f- find out how, how what the scene is like on the ground and you know recently i was getting a lot of letters from the or you know emails from them say hey yo be careful <laughs> yeah. well be careful Gajul Vias, thanks for sharing your life as a Wall Street correspondent, as a Wall Street foreign correspondent with us. Good luck and uh, be careful. Thank you.
Joanna Wolp is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is the executive producer. Conrad Sanguinetti is our engineer. If you want to hear any of our other audio biographies, Google Conversations with Alan Wolper or get a subscription to our show on iTunes. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation. <laughs>